This is Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler. We will, will be discussing the threat to privacy posed by police and corporations exploiting new technologies to conduct surveillance and gather information about us. We also will discuss the way the use of these technologies disproportionately affect communities of color. Our guests are Megan Sway, a lawyer and policy counsel at the ACLU of Maine, who advocates at the state and local level for advances. Sorry, I couldn't quite hear you. Could you please repeat what you said? For advances on civil rights in Maine. And Nate Wessler, a senior staff attorney with the ACLU, Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project located in New York City. Nate is the older of my two sons. Megan um, and Nate, um, welcome to Change Agents. Megan, could you just give um, sort of a, a broad overview of the work you do? Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, I work for the ACLU of Maine as policy counsel, which means I'm primarily in the legislature. Uh, I write legislation uh, that advances civil liberties. I testify in front of different legislative committees, and then I try to get our priority legislation passed uh, and signed by the governor. Thank you. And, and I, um, I ought to add, for those people who aren't familiar with the ACLU. It's the American Civil Liberties Union. And uh, Nate, as you start talking about your work, you probably know um, how long the organization has been um, in existence. Yeah, the ACLU uh, just hit its 100 year anniversary. This is its 100th year. Um, it's a um, I mean, it's a you know unique organization in the United States for a bunch of reasons, partly the breadth of the issues we work on, but partly also because we have this really powerful kind of federated structure. So I work for the national ACLU. Uh, as you said, I'm based in New York. Uh, and we have, there's some national employees elsewhere in the country too. Uh, but then in every state, there's an ACLU affiliate uh, with its own legal staff, its own policy council, and lobbyists and fundraisers and communications folks. Uh, and so a lot of my work is you know at the national level uh, doing uh, litigation intended to have a national impact, uh, but often that involves uh, working very closely with our affiliates around the country, um, including uh, recently some um, really great work with uh, the ACLU of Maine, which is particularly fun for me to have kind of an, a homecoming to work on issues in the state. Well, we can probably will be coming back to some of that. So can you give um, a uh, a short description of what your work is. Yeah, so I work in uh, the Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project of the National ACLU. Uh, we're part of the legal department. Uh, so my work is primarily litigation, although I also work on policy um, matters and with communications of public education. And my job uh, really focuses on uh, curtailing government use of new and emerging surveillance technologies to try to ensure that uh, police in particular uh, are respecting old limits in the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution on police searches and seizures 
when it comes to totally new technologies that the framers of the Fourth Amendment never could have imagined more than two centuries ago. Uh, so it's focusing on things like making sure the police have to get warrants before they access some of our most sensitive digital data held by companies like Google or Facebook or our phone companies. Uh, trying to uh, bring greater transparency around police use of sophisticated new surveillance technologies that can surreptitiously collect information about us, uh, often without us ever knowing it, unless we can force police to be more transparent about what they're doing. And then once we learn what they're doing, trying to impose uh, legal or legislative limits on how they can use this technology, including sometimes trying to take certain tools off the table entirely if we think they are just too invasive to be consistent with uh, civil rights and civil liberties in this country. Uh, and Megan, um, uh, are you doing similar things at the, uh, the state and local level on issues of privacy? Yes, we are. Uh, recently, we were involved a little bit in, Portl in Portland. Um, the city council took up uh, a proposal by uh, City Councilor Pius Ali to ban facial recognition technology uh, use by any city employees. And uh, so that ordinance passed partially. So we have, we have a complete ban on the use of facial recognition technology in Portland, but there's no enforcement mechanism. And so there will be a question on the November ballot that provides enforcement mechanisms if city employees violate that. And then at the state level, we've been involved in a bunch of different legislation over the years. Um, before my time, we did a lot of location tracking uh, legislation requiring warrants for and requiring police to notify people when they were tracking uh, tracking people's cars, except in very limited circumstances. Last year, we are, one of our priority bills was an internet <coughs> service provider privacy bill that requires internet service providers to give, uh, to get from their consumers affirmative consent before they sell their data. Um, and then this past year, we had a couple bills. One was out of the Secretary of State's office. It would let the Secretary of State uh, run facial recognition technology through its databases of driver's license photos and give that information to police. And we got involved in, and limited that to only when there's um, an emergency or imminent danger. And then we also, with Nate's help, had a bill that addresses our state's FOA laws, uh, freedom of access. Um, and that bill, Nate can tell you a little bit more about the background, but it came out of uh, both press and the ACLU wanting to get information from the state police about any facial recognition technology being used and the state police responding that by law they were not allowed to tell us whether or not they had or were using any such technology. I, I think we will get to those issues and uh, I'd like to start and maybe, um, uh, by the way, it's um, 
remarkable to me uh, that the ACLU is, um, is active on so many different fronts just in the privacy area and notwithstanding all the other issues you deal with. Um, but Nate, can, can you explain what facial um, recognition uh, um, means and how it's done and most importantly, why, why is it that the ACLU was concerned about it? Yeah, so when we're talking about facial recognition technology, we're talking about uh, machine learning algorithms, what sometimes people call artificial intelligence, although that is super misleading as a term, uh, that um, is trained, so it's a computer program that over time is trained by feeding a whole bunch of data into it to try to recognize faces and be able to match faces from different photos of the same person. Uh, so often these, uh, these systems, uh, they're you know, developed by some set of computer programmers and then the engineers, computer engineers running them feed a whole bunch of like, thousands of thousands of pairs of photos of the same person, uh, right? So photo A and photo B of me, photo A and photo B of another person, photo A and photo B of a third person, thousands and thousands of those into the system. And over time, it tries to learn which measurements between facial features, which features of uh, um, skin uh, texture, facial geometry, et cetera, it should measure and it takes thousands of these measurements for each face in order to create uh, what's often called a, a face print or a, a facial template, uh, a numerical value, um, kind of a, a equivalent to a fingerprint uh, chart uh, that should be unique for each face. Uh, and, and the idea is that, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, I was, no, finish that, but I was gonna be interested in who uses this. So the, the idea is that eventually this program uh, has learned enough about how to identify faces that uh, a user of it, uh, often that's a police department, uh, lots of private companies, um, uh, big box store chains, uh, insurance companies, banks, others, are able to then feed in a new photo of an unknown person and match it against this database to identify them. Uh, this technology um, you know, has been around in rudimentary forms for decades, but it's really only in the last few years that it's gotten sophisticated enough because of advances in computing power that it's been considered reliable enough for police and corporations to start really using it at scale. Um, it's a technology that we are extremely concerned about. Um, I think it is a, uh, you know, I, I deal in my work with dozens of different kinds of surveillance technologies and sensitive kinds of digital data that police and corporations want access to. Um, I and we at the ACLU really think that this technology poses a categorically greater risk to privacy and freedom in this country than any other that we've dealt with in recent memory. And that's because um, of two reasons, really. Uh, this is a technology that we think is dangerous both when it works and when it doesn't work. Um, and here's what I mean by that. So currently, this technology, which is um, in the law enforcement area, is being used by uh, at least hundreds, probably thousands of police departments around the country at the local, state, and federal level. Uh, it's known to have really serious error rates, and not just error rates on average across the board, but those error rates are much worse uh, for people of color, for darker skinned people, and also for women and for younger people. Um, meaning that uh, there's a much greater likelihood that if a, uh, a photo, for example, of a black man is fed into the system to try to identify them, it will spit out a false match. It'll say somebody else 
the wrong wrong person from the database is this person. Did you know um, wh what the percentage of sort of failure rate is, or so it de there, there are hundreds there are hundreds of these algorithms from made by different companies. Uh, their failure rates um, differ a lot, but the um, you know some of them uh, have a hundred times greater failure rate for darker skinned people than for lighter skinned people. The worst failure rates in most of these are for darker skinned women. Um, and this is there's been exhaustive research by the federal government, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, by independent academic researchers, uh, including a, a researcher at MIT named Joy Bualamwini, who's done a ton of work. And the ACLU has run our own test on some of these systems, uh, including most notably the system developed by Amazon that they've been selling to police. Uh, so the, you know, at current, in the current moment, when we say it's dangerous when it doesn't work, we mean that there's a real risk uh, and it's not just an academic risk. We at the ACLU represent uh, a man in Detroit named Robert Williams, uh, a black man who was falsely arrested by police for shoplifting a, a Shinola watch store um, based on a false recognition, face recognition hit uh, through Michigan police systems. Uh, there's a real risk that when police use this, it's going to just deeply exacerbate the racist um, racist dynamics in policing that we see today by, uh, by arresting the wrong people, by sending police, armed police after people of color at higher rates and at, after the wrong people in particular. Uh, so it's a real danger when it doesn't work and it doesn't work now. Um, but we take no solace in the idea that someday computer scientists might you know, hone these systems and make them actually work perfectly uh, because we know who's gonna be the subject of this kind of surveillance. Uh, you know, all of us should be afraid of a system that threatens to eliminate our ability to maintain any sense of anonymity when we're walking around in public. Uh, these cameras are hooked up to surveillance. Uh, th this technology is hooked up to surveillance camera systems across our cities and, and on our highways. Uh, you know, we all have something to fear, but we don't have something to fear all equally. Uh, we know based on uh, how police do their work, um, and we've all seen in the current protest uh, movement, uh, how acute these concerns are, that it's gonna be communities of color uh, that are gonna bear the brunt of these systems, just like they bear the brunt of current policing practices. And that creates real risks that this technology will just exacerbate uh, racist patterns in policing that we already know about. And Megan, are you um, or others see having the same concerns about the, uh, the significant um, impact on communities of color and in Portland and other cities? Definitely. I mean, Black Lives Matter Portland made it part of its policy platform in, in June to ban facial recognition technology, recognizing the particular threat that it, it poses to Black folks in our state. And we see you know, data in Maine is not uniformly collected or published, but the data we do have shows that uh, people of color, especially Black people, are vastly disproportionately stopped and um, arrested and prosecuted and sentenced uh, as compared to white people. And so this is definitely something that even though Maine is significantly wider than most states. Um, it's still, for those people of color in our state, it really means that they are targets uh, even more so than they already are. Mm -hmm. um, why do businesses use this? 
You know, it's um, for a whole range of reasons. Uh, mostly it's totally unnecessary, but uh, you know, commercial businesses uh, that are actually running stores uh, use it sometimes, they say, to be able to identify shoplifters, known shoplifters. Uh, so the, um, there was just recently uh, a pretty exhaustively reported story about uh, a pharmacy chain, I think it was Rite Aid, uh, across the country using this. Um, so they would have photos of people who had been suspected of shoplifting in the past, and then they wanted this to be able to automatically alert security guards to kick them out if they were seen in the stores again. Um, predictably, the story found that the stores that this technology was installed in were almost exclusively in uh, predominantly black and Latinx communities. Uh, and so you then combine the error rates and the uh, disproportionate sighting of where this technology goes. And of course, now you have a recipe for exactly the same kinds of racist targeting that we're worried about in the law enforcement sphere. Um, you have other businesses that are using it for more tailored reasons. Uh, so for example, some banks have tried to, to adopt this technology uh, to try to provide a secondary means of authentication of a user. So say I go to an ATM, uh, some banks have set it up so that they can try to just do a one-to-one -one match. So they'll have a photo of me saved in their system and they wanna know if I put in my card and put in my pin, is it actually me who's, who's showing up there? Um, that's less of a risk than the more kind of surveillance types. Um, and there, there are businesses also that will, you know, they have a sensitive secure area, you're supposed to swipe in your card and you know, put in a, a thumbprint or something, maybe they'll also require a face scan. Uh, those are much more limited uses that don't have much, as much of a serious civil liberties concern. Uh, but it also means that there's a lot of financial incentive for companies to be developing this technology for the worst uses too. So, um, Megan, you described the, the efforts in um, Portland with the, the ordinance. Um, Nate, are you and your colleagues in litigation around the country on these issues? We are, but actually before I talk about litigation, I just want to highlight the importance of efforts like what happened in Portland uh, to ban police's ability to use this really dangerous and troublesome technology. Uh, so ACLU, state ACLU affiliates around the country have been pushing really hard on these efforts at a local level uh, to force debate about this technology and then get local elected bodies, city councils and, and county boards of commissioners uh, and state legislatures to put a moratorium or a ban on police use of this technology. Um, Portland, I think, was the, the 12th or 13th city in the country to do that. Uh, so places like San Francisco and Oakland and Berkeley and California, uh, Boston and Cambridge and Springfield and Massachusetts and, and a handful of other cities have already banned police use. And do they have enforcement mechanisms? Uh, most of those bills do have enforcement mechanisms, um, and that's really important. Uh, and what would that mean? What would be the enforcement? Um, so often, um, often, it's a, you know, often it's a private right of action for an individual to sue uh, if, they, um, if they have been targeted by or surveilled by this technology that shouldn't be used at all. An even better enforcement mechanism is to let anybody sue uh, on sort of a, uh, the theory that, you know, it's my tax dollars being misappropriated here. Uh, and so I should be able to force, um, uh, force the city to comply with a clear legal prohibition. And are you also in, in court um, on these issues or could perhaps give an example? 
Yeah, so we've been in court um, in a few ways uh, around face recognition technology. Um, last year, we filed a, a friend of the court brief, an amicus brief in the Florida State Supreme Court uh, in a case where police in Jacksonville, Florida had used face recognition technology to identify a suspect who they uh, arrested and then prosecuted in a, a low dollar drug buy. Uh, basically, there were two undercover cops driving around a black neighborhood in Jacksonville. Uh, they pull over, start talking to a, a guy they didn't know, a, a black man on the side of the road. Um, these cops uh, ask if they can buy some drugs off him. He walks into a house and comes comes out and offers them $50 worth of cocaine. Uh, the cops had no idea who he, he was, and they snap a, a very low-quality kind of off-center photo of him surreptitiously with a cell phone. Then they go back to their station house. They email the photo to someone at headquarters who runs it through a statewide, Florida statewide face recognition system. Uh, and that system spits back a bunch of potential matches to um, photos in a mugshot database maintained by that county. Uh, and then the crime analyst picks the one she thinks is right, sends that photo back to the police and the police say, oh yeah, that must that seems to be the right guy. Uh, and then they, they then have a name, they go pick him up and prosecute him. Um, but during the pretrial period, when police and the prosecutor are supposed to be turning over to the defense uh, information about how they conducted their investigation and what their evidence was. They refused to turn over information about that face recognition system. Uh, they refused to turn over the algorithm that was used. They refused to turn over any results of accuracy testing on that system. They refused even to turn over the whole set of possible matches that the system spit back. The way these systems work is that they they spit out at the end a bunch of potential matches and they try to rank, the computer ranks them in likelihood order. Mm -hmm. um, but it's all probabilistic. And so then some human has to decide, uh, what do I think? Um, but all of that would have been a potential defense. The system has errors, the, the analyst chose the wrong person. Uh, and so we filed a brief saying this violates this man's due process rights not to turn that information over. And, it's a foundational right of criminal defendants. And what happened in the Florida Supreme Court. The Florida Supreme Court decided not to take the case. It's a court of discretionary review like the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so unfortunately, that case ended uh, and this man is, is serving time in prison now. Um, but what we were able to do with that brief is then to, to start sending it to defense attorneys around the country as part of a, uh, an effort to help them educate themselves about this technology. Um, what's actually the most unique about that case in Florida is not that the prosecution refused to turn over all this really important information. Actually, the unique thing is that police or the prosecution told this criminal defendant that they do face recognition at all. Uh, the struggle in most cases is that um, defense attorneys never know that this technology was used at all, so they can't even ask the questions. So that's what we're trying to really help with is, okay. is to identify the telltale signs and try to get basic transparency. Thank you. I need to let people know who we are and where um, what we're talking about. You are listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERU. I am Steve Wessler. My guests today are Megan Sway, a lawyer and policy counsel at the ACLU of Maine, and Nate Wessler, a lawyer and senior staff attorney with the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project located in New York City. Nate is the older of my two sons. Uh, we are discussing the threats to privacy posed by police and corporations exploiting new technologies to conduct surveillance and gather information about 
all of us. We also will discuss or have been discussing the way the use of these technologies disproportionately affect the communities of color. So I, I want to um, take a diversion from uh, the privacy issues to learn um, a little bit about how, how and why you ended up working at the ACLU. For, for both of you and Megan, I'll start with you. Um, you could be earning far, far more money in a Portland law firm um, than you are doing here. What, when did you, when did you develop or find that human rights, social justice issues were important to you and finally led you to do the kind of work you're doing now? It was, I was late in life, I feel, for most ACLU uh, folks. I was in law school and I thought that I was going to go to a big firm and earn lots of money and sort of live the New York corporate lifestyle. And instead, I uh, heard a lecture by, my, by Professor Brian Stevenson, who runs the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama. And then I took a couple classes with him. And I, without having ever been to Alabama, signed up for a two-year fellowship to represent uh, folks on death row in Alabama. And so after two years of seeing uh, the legal system and how it chews up and spits people out um, and, and targets people of color and poor people, uh, I, it was really hard to say that corporate law was the way for me going forward. When we, we spoke earlier, you also talked about something much earlier, a conversation that your father had about um, the awful uh, violence and uh, really amounting to genocide as Yugoslavia uh, fell apart and, and um, new uh, countries um, uh, were created. So maybe yes, it was a, uh, a little earlier. <laughs> when I was probably in the fourth or fifth grade, I remember having a conversation with my father about what was happening in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and he uh, sort of talked about how sometimes there was a moral imperative to act, and he um, cited the Holocaust and said that as a Jew, some, some things were right and some things were wrong, and uh, and sometimes it was very clear. And so I would say growing up, I had a very strong sense of right and wrong, uh, and some things were morally right and some things were morally wrong, but it was not a systemic sense. It was more of an individual case by case, something is right or something is wrong. Nate, um, uh, uh, when did you start doing things that involved social justice or human rights or other other ways to describe it? Yeah, well, so, um, you know, I grew up in a family, as you well know, Dad, uh, where, um, uh, you know, social justice issues and, uh, and political activism, uh, small p and capital p political activism were really central. Uh, so, you know, grew up 
talking about uh, political issues um, and social justice issues, uh, volunteering on local um, election campaigns. Uh, you know, I remember um, being really keyed in to the early rounds of, of the kind of serial debate in Maine around adding sexual orientation to the state civil rights law. Um, so grew up with a real sense of, of kind of the importance of doing social justice work. Um, and then went off to college, was really active in campus organizing, um, uh, spent my summers interning at nonprofit organizations, um, including then my, uh, my last summer of college coming back home to Maine and interning at the ACLU of Maine, uh, which was a fantastic experience. And I was kind of doing everything. I was helping answer legal intake mail, um, it was a couple years after the Patriot Act had passed, so I was helping organize local rallies across the state uh, opposing the effects of the Patriot Act and, and trying to push um, towns across the state to enact uh, really non-binding resolutions, but kind of symbolic resolutions opposing the Patriot Act and calling on Congress to repeal it. Um, and that was a great, a great summer. And through that work, I, I was able to work a little bit with Shenna Bellows, who was um, at that time... Uh, working for the ACLU as a field organizer in Washington, D.C., um, and she was responsible for working with Maine, uh, which made a lot of sense, and she, of course, grew up in, uh, in Maine before she came back to, um, to work at the ACLU there, and uh, uh, you know, she was in, in D.C. and then came back, uh, and now, um, of course, is in the legislature. Um, so I, that was a great experience. I then went off to college. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, I graduated college, spent two years um, uh, after a little bit of work on a presidential election campaign as an organizer uh, back at the ACLU in DC, uh, first working for Shenna. Uh, I graduated college, uh, finished an election season job, and then called her up and asked if she knew of any cool jobs in DC, and turned out she needed someone to work for her, um, helping organize opposition to um, what was called the Flag Desecration Amendment, uh, which was an effort that came very close to passing to amend the First Amendment to the Constitution to ban flag burning. Uh, and so it was my job to um, work with military veterans across the country who, uh, who were offended by flag burning, but were more offended by the idea that we should be able to create an exception to the right to free speech in this country and stifle dissent. Uh, and that was a really powerful experience. Um, uh, Shenna then left DC and came back to Maine to be the uh, director of the ACLU Maine, and I ended up taking over her job in DC, uh, worked on a whole range of, of ACLU issues from uh, issues around uh, marriage equality and religious freedom and um, civil liberties in the context of the war on terror. Um, so I did that for two years and then realized that the, you know, I'd been working with all these really talented ACLU attorneys uh, and realized that that was the set of skills I wanted. I wanted to go to law school and get a law degree and be able to. Um, be more effective in the kind of social justice work I'd come to really care about. Uh, and so I uh, did that. Um, one of my summers during law school, I interned at the ACLU. Uh, I graduated, I worked for a judge for a year, and then came to the National ACLU for a one-year fellowship working on national security-related civil liberties issues, uh, issues around indefinite detention at Guantanamo and around targeted killing and drone strikes. Um, and then after a year of that, uh, the job that I now have came open, uh, and it was you know, sort of a amazing fortuity of timing and my foot was kind of half on the door because I was um, in the National ACLU and so I moved over to doing this work around privacy in the digital age uh, and I've been doing this for about eight years now. I'm focused really heavily on law enforcement practices and, um, and trying to avoid the worst effects of this new technological age that we're in. Thank you. Thank you both. 
Um, so, and I think a lot of the privacy issues, um, uh, what you're looking for is um, for the police to get a warrant. Um, and for either of you, um, uh, what, why is it that, uh, what does it take to, to get a warrant from a judge? Um, and why is it that uh, police in this area seem so resistant to doing that? So, Megan? Sure. Uh, why is it that they seem so resistant? I mean, I think there has been a, a culture of um, elevating police and police work so that this a uh, nebulous idea of public safety uh, takes over and is more important in, has been more important in the public discourse than constitutional rights and than the need to have probable cause or an independent magistrate or judge decide, look at an application for a warrant and say, is there probable cause and is to search this person. Um, and so this, in my mind, it's the, the public safety above all else has led to a lot of impunity for police acting, um, feeling like it's okay to take shortcuts, it's okay to um, not follow the constitution in, or in the name of this nebulous public safety. But I don't know, Nate, what you, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the um, the kind of like doctrinal legal part of that that's been really um, difficult and that is, you know, a majority of the, the time I spend in my job thinking about um, is the, the really long lag in being able to update judicial interpretation of our Fourth Amendment rights, right? So the Fourth Amendment, of course, is the part of the Bill of Rights that uh, regulates police searches and seizures that requires a warrant when police are searching our private spaces or our, our private items. Um, but that was a document written uh, in the 1790s. Uh, and, you know, it was written at a time, obviously, before we had cloud computing, before we had cell phones in our pockets, before face recognition technology existed. Uh, and so it's, um, it, it's taken a really long time for courts to update our understanding of how that applies in new kinds of digital age searches. Uh, and part of what police and prosecutors do over and over is, um, is try to give themselves cover from very old legal doctrines from the pre-digital age to try to bless uh, extraordinarily expensive searches in the digital age. So a couple examples of that um, are, uh, so we have litigation right now um, in the federal appeals court that sits in Boston that covers Maine and, and the other Northern New England states, uh, the First Circuit, about what the Fourth Amendment should mean when police wanna search your phone or your laptop when you're coming back into the country uh, across the border. Either you fly into an international airport like Logan or you're driving in over the Canadian border and you get stopped by Customs and Border Protection uh, to show your passport, et cetera. Um, it's, been, it's been the case for centuries that um, border authorities have been thought to have the right to inspect your physical luggage for whatever reason or no reason at all when you're at the border on the theory that their job is to prevent uh, contraband from coming to the country, 
to make sure people are paying import duties to prevent dangerous items. So uh, that's why if you're driving across and uh, border authorities say they want to search your car, you basically have no recourse. You step out of your car and they get to do it. The government thinks the same rule should apply if they want to search your cell phone. Um, we think that just can't be, and we're litigating that, and courts have started to side with us. And just, uh, just in a sentence or two, why is it different than searching your luggage? That's right. So it, it's different because um, it's really, it's a difference in kind and degree. Never before in the history of humanity has a person been able to fit on a small, in a small box in their pocket, a cell phone, the entirety of their correspondence from the last five years, the equivalent of hundreds of family photo albums, all your medical records, your calendar, your date book, your contacts, uh, videos, financial records, on and on. So there's just no comparison between what you could fit in a suitcase and the quantity and diversity of private information that fits on a cell phone or a laptop. And for that reason, uh, we argue, and courts have started to agree, that the Fourth Amendment just requires a different protection, a different level of protection in order to avoid uh, abusive and privacy invasive searches by border authorities. Um, so let me, let me turn, Megan, to you, or um, uh, what would, um, uh, assuming that you uh, prevail on this case or any other case, what, what, what are they dealing with um, at requiring police to get a warrant. What kind of evidence does this, is it, is it a high barrier? I mean, probable cause is, uh, it is not a high barrier. It is not the lowest barrier. So uh, for example, in Maine's bail code, um, there is an ability for judges to allow if you're out on bail as a condition of bail for uh, police to either search you randomly at any time or upon um, articulable suspicion. And that is a lower threshold than probable cause, but probable cause is uh, often dealing before you've even been arrested. Uh, and so, um, in terms of what types of evidence, Nate, I don't know if you have examples from your litigation. I'm trying to think of recent examples here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a flexible concept. I mean, you're, you're you're absolutely right. It's you know, it's an important protection, but it's not an insurmountable barrier to police, right? So it's you know, police police get warrants in their investigations every day, right? If anytime police want to go into somebody's home. Uh, open a you know a locked container uh, of theirs, um, etc. Please know how to get warrants, and it, it can be things like you know a confidential informant told us that this person did X, and we think that that's credible because we corroborated that account with some other information we have, right? Or you know a um, police officer was watching this person, and we saw them do an, you know some illegal activity. Uh, and so, and we, we have the following reason to think that more evidence of that illegal activity is in their house, right? So it's, it's real concrete, articulable facts that, that give rise to a strong inference that the person committed a crime and the evidence of that crime is in the place that needs to be searched. This is, you know, this is the standard that's written into the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. Um, it is totally administrable. Police do it all the time. 
but also the entire intent of the Fourth Amendment when it was framed was to put some friction into the law enforcement investigative process to make it so the police can't just on a hunch because it's a Tuesday, because you're black, because they dislike you, enter your house and search your stuff. Uh, and for most of these technologies that we're talking about, all we're really saying is police should have to um, abide by the same practical uh, friction-making barrier, right? They should have to go to an independent judge, demonstrate some real facts of the legal activity and that there's evidence of that in the place they want to search, uh, and then get their warrant. And that warrant not only requires probable cause, but it also needs to limit particularly what actually is searched, right? So, and that becomes really important in digital age when police, uh, you know, the, the next fight after we've won requirements to get a warrant, the next fight in, inevitably is a fight over what that warrant has to say. Uh, and police would love it to say, uh, you can search the suspect's entire Gmail account, period, or search the whole phone. Um, that can't be the rule either because our email, our phones, our laptops have such a wide variety of sensitive information intermingled that the warrant has to really constrain it. Right? So, you can search for this date range with this keyword or this type of file, but not that type of file. That's really important too. So litigation in this area is going to continue for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you are listening to Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERU. I am Steve Wessler. My guests today are Megan Sway, a lawyer and policy counsel at the ACLU of Maine, and Nate Wessler, a lawyer and senior staff attorney with the ACLU Speed Privacy and Technology Project located in New York City. Nate is the older of my two sons. We, will, we are discussing the threats to privacy posed by police and corporations, exploiting new technologies to conduct surveillance and gather information about us. We also are discussing the way the use of these technologies disproportionately affect people of color. So, you know, I, I talk to, to um, public interest lawyers who say, um, we're never gonna win a case in our life. Um, uh, there are five um, conservative judges and there are four um, liberal judges. Uh, but that uh, may not apply to you. Nate, focus. Yeah, I mean, that's um, you know, one way in which the the issues that I work on are, you know, a particularly hopeful area in this moment uh, is that issues around privacy and protections of the Fourth Amendment don't break down cleanly along traditional partisan lines in the courts or in legislatures. Um, and we see this certainly with bipartisan coalitions passing privacy laws. I mean, that was true, um, I think, in, you know, in 2013 when the Maine legislature passed what was then a, a real uh, leading bill in the entire country requiring a warrant before police can track our cell phones or our other electronic devices. Uh, and we see it in the courts uh, where you have um, libertarian-leaning conservative judges and justices who really think there's uh, a dangerous threat if police have easy, too easy access to our sensitive digital information or, or use of surveillance technologies. Uh, and so when um, you know, a few years ago, I uh, argued a case in the US Supreme Court uh, called Carpenter versus the United States, uh, uh, the question was whether police have to get a warrant before they go to your cell phone company 
and request a history of your location information. So every time we use our cell phones to make or receive a phone call or send or receive a text message or check the internet, the phone company logs a record of where the, the cell phone was uh, and it saves those uh, often for years. Um, police have known about this for decades now and it's a real favorite investigative technique to try to figure out where you were at a particular time during in the course of a criminal investigation. Uh, and for years, police were not getting search warrants based on probable cause before uh, doing this. Um, so we argued in the Supreme Court that uh, the Fourth Amendment requires greater protection because cell phone location history is so highly sensitive. And in the, the modern age, there's really no way to avoid carrying a cell phone. And so you're just being tracked all the time. Uh, and the, the Supreme Court agreed in a decision written by Chief Justice Roberts. It was a five to, really a five to three decision with, with another conservative, Justice Gorsuch, agreeing on different grounds. Uh, but Justice Roberts, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, joining the four more liberal members, uh, writing in a really strong opinion that a warrant is required. Uh, and so, so absolutely, it's an area where you have um, unusual coalitions across traditional partisan lines. Uh, it doesn't always happen. We certainly lose cases. But it means that there's, there's real potential not just to be fighting kind of a defensive battle, but actually trying to expand our privacy rights in the digital age. And, and also, um, Megan, uh, just the, the efforts you've talked about by um, state legislation, but also um, at the local level, can, there's a tremendous opportunity. Yes, I mean, we have several uh, legislators in Augusta who are probably opposed to us on most other issues, but are very strong defenders of the Fourth Amendment and feel very strongly about that government should not unduly interfere in private citizens' lives. And so that is one of the areas where we are able to um, work with people who otherwise don't agree with us on most of our issues to uh, forge a common understanding. And I think Maine in particular is very proud of its long history of being on the forefront of privacy uh, protections. And that is a great thing about being in this state. So we, we've talked a lot about facial recognition technology. Megan and then Nate, what, what are, if you could um, cite one other um, issue that for each of you that is really important to, to address um, other than facial recognition technology, what would that be? One other issue. Um, well, I think here in Maine, if we're continuing to look at the ways in which our legal structures target people of color, especially black people, we had a bill in the legislature last year to decriminalize drug possession um, and to deal with drug trafficking. Uh, black people make up 1.6% or somewhere along there of the state population, but are 21% of the people arrested for the highest level of drug trafficking in our state. And they are, I want to say, 15% of those arrested for the second highest level of trafficking. So it's, um, for me, if we're really going to get at another area in which, uh, you know, the stakes are are very high for people of color and for justice in general. Um, the ways in which we criminalize behavior, especially right now drugs, uh, is top of my list. 
Thank you. And, and Nate, uh, the question focusing on um, other issues of privacy that are um, are on your radar screen as really serious impediments to um, to the right to have all, have all of who you are be private without somebody simply turning on a switch. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I think there are, there are probably a, a half dozen substantive questions that I think are super important. But um, but I think you know an overarching concern uh, that I talked about a little earlier is the problem of secrecy when it comes to law enforcement use of these techniques and these technologies. Uh, and uh, you know, there's there's no hope for our elected officials, for our judges, or for just members of our communities to put appropriate rules in place to protect against abuses if we don't know what police are doing. Um, and so it's really important to have uh, you know, good public records laws that force disclosure of basic accurate information about usage and purchase and usage of these technologies. Um, it's really important that there be robust disclosure to defense attorneys and criminal defendants when this information is used against them. Um, and it's really important that uh, members of local communities and their elected officials have a chance to explicitly accept or reject police adoption of these new technologies before they're already used. Um, the ACLU has been working with a large coalition of uh, community groups and civil rights organizations in a bunch of communities around the country to push what we are calling community control over police surveillance ordinances, which are local laws that, um, that say that anytime police wanna uh, adopt or buy a new surveillance technology, they first have to disclose it to the public, uh, provide uh, an impact assessment that will describe the privacy invasive potential of this technology, racially disparate impact, and other information. There has to be a public debate period. And then there has to be an explicit vote by local elected officials to actually authorize the adoption or use of this technology. So it can't just happen in secret. Um, that's really crucial. Uh, and it really makes a difference because then you have members of communities making decisions about what's appropriate for police in their city or in their state, uh, not police deciding that they just want to use the, the newest toy that they can afford uh, and then rolling it out with anybody having anything to say about it. So the, the, the normal rule in a prosecution is that the, the prosecutors have to um, disclose all the information that is relevant to the defense attorney. Is there something different about that in, in the, the realm of um, using some of these new technologies? Uh, so yes and no. I mean, as Megan can probably talk about from her work on death penalty cases, um, there is a rampant epidemic in this country of prosecutors in every state wantonly violating the rights of people accused of crimes and withholding relevant evidence. It is, it is impossible to overstate the seriousness of, of that problem. It is endemic everywhere. Okay, so let me. And, let me... and so that exists. That exists with technology too, um, right? So so people are entitled to information pre-trial if they're accused of a crime that they can use to try to defend themselves. Uh, information uh, that would provide them with exculpatory evidence, an alibi, information that someone else did it, but also information about the weakness of the government's case. Like we use a surveillance technology that actually doesn't function as well as we say it does. We used a face recognition algorithm that actually has a 40% error rate for black men. 
uh, that kind of information. That's often not being turned over. So I want to come back to this, but um, Nate, but um, Megan, did, did you run into these issues when you were representing uh, people on death row? Yeah, I think um, it's called a Brady violation, Brady versus Maryland. And uh, those were, I, you know, I can't specifically remember in my particular cases, but it, it as Nate said, is endemic. Uh, and it is part of a culture of if someone is accused of doing something bad and you believe they did something bad, then the ends justify the means or the means justify the ends, both. And now coming back to um, the privacy area, um, if a, if a defense lawyer um, uh, sends a letter to the prosecutor and says, I want to know what um, equipment um, uh, you were using, um, if any, that, to get this information, um, are they, um, does that fall under the Brady rule that would require a disclosure or not? So we think it should, and there's, um... You know, some places the case law is underdeveloped, but um, at least in some parts of the country, there's there are very clear, clear rules that say that um, you're entitled not only to information uh, as a criminal defendant that helps establish your innocence, but also information that would be relevant to arguing that your Fourth Amendment rights were violated during the investigation. Um, and so, you know, that kind of information could be relevant to either of those things. Uh, we've seen though, when when defense attorneys in places across and, the country- And they, in, a, in yeah. about a minute and a half here. So we, we've seen, um, you know, prosecution responses to those kind of requests saying things like, uh, we can't answer that question because the answer is a law enforcement secret and uh, the bad guys would get away if we told you that. Or we can't answer that question because we signed a confidentiality agreement with the private company that sold us that surveillance technology. That's outrageous. We've seen it over and over places. Uh, you can't sign a private contract to violate somebody's constitutional rights as the police department that just can't fly. So um, these problems are serious and they're all over the place and uh, courts have a role, but so do local elected officials in, uh, in solving some of these problems. So for each of you, and you're really gonna just have about uh, a minute to do this, um, um, but they're important. What's hard in, uh, in 60 seconds about doing this work? Megan. Uh, <laughs> I think for me, it's when people I expect to get it, don't get it. And so the people you think of as your friends and allies and having to work really hard to get them on board, let alone people who definitely you don't expect to be with you. I mean, that, that work is expected and you gear yourself up, but it's when people you expect to be with you need a lot of work to, to get on your side. Yeah, I, I think, you know, one of the hard things is um, making complicated technology comprehensible and explainable to all the audiences that are important. Uh, in my work, that's usually judges, sometimes it's elected officials, sometimes it's reporters, so they can explain to local community members what's going on. Uh, you know, there are lots of 
new bells and whistles that police and corporations are using to gather information about us. Sometimes they're based on really complicated technologies and it's a real challenge and a real skill to try to be able to distill those so people can just understand what's actually at stake and what we can do about it. It's not, it's not inevitable. Uh, the march of technology can be shaped to respect our constitutional human rights. Um, we're closing in on, on the end of our time. And uh, I think what strikes me is that we've, we've barely um, gotten below the surface of all of a whole array of efforts to deal that deal with privacy in the, the medical field and uh, with drugs and in, in other areas. Um, uh, thank you both for the work that, uh, that you're doing. Uh, I imagine it can be extraordinarily hard uh, to be uh, working on such important issues and um, win some and then lose others and yet there'll be another technology coming up and you've got to in some way start all over. Um, you have been listening to change agents, conversations with human rights and social justice advocates. We have been discussing the threats to privacy posed by police and corporations exploiting new technologies to conduct surveillance and gather information about us. We also discussed the way the use of these technologies disproportionately affect communities of color. Our guests today were Megan Sway, a lawyer and who works for the ACLU of Maine, and Nate Wessler, a lawyer with the ACLU in New York. Nate is the older of my two sons. You can listen to Change Agents the first Thursday of every month here on WERU-FM at 89.9 FM and streaming at WERU.org. And thank you again, both Nate and Megan. <laughs>